Okay, I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> I saw an interesting, uh, an interesting um, article in the uh, in the New York Times um, that was talking about a, a genetic study that was made about the the Jewish people, and they found something. They, they found something. Uh, very, very striking, which is um, different from uh, other populations in the world, which is that normally speaking, um, geographically, if you look at the uh, just sort of the, 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 the gene pool from different countries, it's, it, it reflects the, the region that it's from. But with the Jewish people, it's everyone who's Jewish basically has the same gene pool, even if they live in the four corners of the world. So that's that's unusual. That that's that's not normally the case, and um, and furthermore, they, they showed that the the relationship between Jews all over the world on a genetic level is actually a very close familial relationship, meaning to say that all Jews basically are fourth or fifth cousins in the entire world. So so when we talk about us being the Jewish people being one family. It's true in, on the conceptual level, just on the idea level, that we're all sort of united in, in terms of our approach to life. But on the biological level, we're, we actually are one family. We, we are all cousins with each other, no matter you know, where in the world you're from. We're all, we're all cousins. So, but, but that's not the reason why I'm telling you this. There was something more striking than that. And I would just introduce this idea by comparing it to... Um, to the rings on a tree. So everybody knows that if you cut down a tree, there are all sorts of concentric circles, the rings. And that you can actually study the rings on the tree and find out, go back in time. And you can use it as sort of like a, um, a map of history. Like for instance, in terms of uh, the distance between the rings, you can find out what the um, amount of water supply was at that period of time. So, so you can find out if there was, say, a, a drought or, or, or something like this, or whether there were tremendous rainfalls. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's also striking. So they find that, using, using this idea um, as just a, just a way to understand this next thought, um, they find that the genetic record actually is, has a historical map to it. That, for instance, when a new genetic imprint starts, they can find out approximately what year that began. So just like looking at the rings of a tree and being able to understand what happened in history, they can look at DNA and find out when new, new, um, when new strains started, approximately what year. So now with that in mind, here's the point. They found, and this, this point was in the, the New York Times article, or they were reporting on these genetic studies, they found that the whole um, Iraqi, Iranian, sort of Persian uh, side of the Jewish family, they could trace when that began. And it began at the time of this, the destruction of the first base Amigdash, which is exactly when we say that population from the Jewish people was taken into exile into Babylonia. Because Iraq and Iran is, is where Babylonia was. So, so it's, it, the genetic record corroborates, validates Jewish history. Because exactly when that population started is when we say our people were brought to that part of the world. That's, that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. So, so that's the end of the thought, but just to, just to put a PS on it. Jewish history is very, very reliable. And there's nothing really more reliable than, 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 than what we call our Masora, which is the, the testimony that's been handed down from father and mother to child for generations and generations and generations and generations in an unbroken chain. And, you know, the, uh, the Rambam actually will tell you, has a list of all of the leaders of the generation from either from Moshe Rabbeinu or maybe even from before Moshe Rabbeinu. May even be from before Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, because we know we know the we know the timeline from Avraham Avinu. But he's he's tracking it throughout all of history. 
So we know who the leaders of the generations were in every single generation. So, so our account of history is very, very reliable. Um, I heard a side point, which is that sometimes like um, early hi historical recordings have um, big gaps in them. And, and this is very much true for Jewish history as well. And I heard an explanation. I, I don't remember the source for this, but I, I just thought it was an intriguing idea, so I'll share it with you. Um, and that is that the people didn't, back in the day, we're talking about in ancient times, didn't really have a sense of the concept of history. <laughs> so there wasn't this sort of imperative, this, this driving mission to record the events because just the idea of recording history was not a was not something that necessarily occurred to them really and and by the way you know we know that the torah comes from hashem giving the torah to moshe rabenu and mount sinai so rabbi wolfson makes this point but it just sort of kind of fits into this discussion which is the whole beginning of the torah where we talk, we say, you know, out of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. Who wrote, who, who was there to record that? Right? It was, only God was there to record that. And what about the entire book of Genesis, of Breshis? Who was recording that if the Torah began with Moshe speaking with Hashem speaking to Moshe at Mount Sinai. So the answer is, all of, that, all of that early history was given by God to Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai, including the account of the origin of the world, the first days of creation. So, so it just sort of like, because that, that's, the, that's one of the reasons why I think we go back to those stories of our holy fathers and mothers over and over and over again because they were actually God is the narrator <laughs> in other words it wasn't the people themselves saying and then we thought that Yosef was going to lead this rebellion against our family so we we called a family meeting and we decided what should we do about this person who who seems to be a threat to, to the Jewish people at its, at its early inception, so we decided not to kill him, that we were going to sell him into slavery. None of that is from the point of view of the brothers. It's all from God reporting exactly what happened. So, you, you know, we, we talk about in, in literature, they have a term called the omniscient narrator, which means the all-knowing narrator. Well, it's a turn of phrase when we're talking about fiction. But when we're talking about the Torah, there really is an omniscient narrator. And that's really the point of view that the Torah is, is, is being written from. Okay, so these are just some ideas about history. Um, you see, so then you say, well, you know, but, but, so, but wait a second. So, so all of the events of the Exodus we know are true in terms of all the plagues and all the miracles and all the wonders and everything like that because all of those events were reported back down to the children to the children to the children to the children and they were all recorded as they happened by the omniscient narrator by God through Moshe you say well wait a second but they're describing so often a different type of reality where are those miracles today like how can I relate to those things today and the Ramban actually gives a very amazing answer to someone who asks, where are the miracles today? First of all, the miracles never stop. That, that's, the, that's the first answer. The miracles never stop. And he, he says in another place, anyone who doesn't understand that every single thing that happens in, in the world is a miracle has no share in the Torah of Moshe. Because how is it possible that we even exist? How is it possible that there's even a world? What? You're worrying about why seas aren't splitting? How is there a world? How do you even have a conscious thought? How does your arm not fly off? Like, like these are the more relevant questions. But we go, ah, no, 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 that's just the way it is. 
That's just the way it is? That's not just the way it is. <laughs> it's like this is, reality is an ongoing seamless miracle. This is, this is actually the truth. And, and what's so funny about this is that you say, oh, that's so spiritual. No, that's not spiritual. That's actually what's happening. It's the actual meat and potatoes reality. So, so the Ramban says in another place, he says to, to someone who asks, well, then where are all these miracles today? And the Ramban says, God already did the miracles. And by the way, and is, and in parentheses, and is continuing to do the miracles, just different type of miracles. Um, so, so if you think about it, if you think about the, the enormity of reality and everything that, that continues to happen, whether a sea splits today or not is, is really the least of it. Because it's such a minor detail in the vastness of all of the miracles that are going on on an ongoing basis. So, but another point, just about miracles, which is, and, and I read this, I, I read this years ago uh, from an author, uh, Milan Kundera, he's a very famous uh, fiction writer. I believe it was in the book, uh, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, it may have been in another one of his books, I'm not sure. But he makes this point, it was just an aside on one of the pages of the novel, but it always stayed with me, which is he said that, um, that, that one sense of reality is, 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 is dependent on, on consistency. So, in other words, what, 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 what challenges us about miracles is that there's a break in our familiar sense of reality. But God, who's bringing the world into existence every single moment, which is this great ongoing miracle which is happening right now and all of the time, isn't tied to the previous moment. So there's no... There's no, there's no contradiction in terms of God's ability, which is infinite, to do whatever he wants at whatever moment. And if God decides to depart from the, the, the thing that we're so tied to and the thing that we're so used to, that's our issue. That's not any, any problem with God's ability to do whatever he wants at whatever moment. So, so we should just understand that that the fabric of creation is the fabric of miracles. And it's just God's decision what, what kind of miracles he wants to make at any given moment. Okay. So, with this in mind, I want to go into uh, a question, and it seems to be a very, very innocent question that the Morvishemish asks, but it's going to lead to basically a spiritual history of the entire world. Right? And, and here you see, just, just, just to pause for a moment to sort of marvel at the methodology of Torah study, how an innocent question can unlock vast treasure troves of knowledge. Right? So, so just appreciate just the dynamics of Torah study that are going to sort of unfold right here. And, and the, the humble birth of, of what we're about to learn from, like I say, a very seemingly technical question. Okay. So, um, in Parshas Chukas, it, it, it begins with this discussion of uh, the Paraduma. Paraduma was the red heifer, and, and the red heifer is a very crucial um, element in terms of um, Jewish history and Jewish destiny. Because it says that there have been nine Paradumas, nine red heifers, and in the Messianic era, will receive the, the, the final one, the, the, the tenth one. So a paraduma is a, it's a, it's a, it's this cow that is all red-haired. And it can have, I think, one or two non-red hairs, but and it also it can never have had a yoke on it, it can never have been put to work, and there are all sorts of um, things that make its appearance very, very rare. I read a, a New Yorker uh, article a few years ago that said that there are, there's a cattle rancher a Christian man, but who's, you know, very much a, 
a, a, a God-fearing, believing person, and he has, um, in you know, cattle ranching, especially like in Texas and places like this, it's it's the most advanced genetic types of versions of this because you know they have thousands or tens of thousands of heads of cattle. So this is super big business, you know, and and he is trying to make or breed a red heifer because he understands the importance of this. So so what is the importance of this? You need the ashes of the red heifer in order to remove something called tumas mace, which means there's there's a you see when we have the holy temple. There's all sorts of laws which we don't have today, but are still very relevant, especially you know when we get close to the time of Mashiach. Laws of how you can use and enter and offer korbonos uh, offerings in the in the holy temple, and one has to be in a state of what we call tahara, which means ritual purity, in order to be able to do these things. This is one of the one of the knockout blows. Um, where, where one would be called tame, ritually impure. Now, just, just so you understand, pure and impure is no judgment on the quality of the person. These are more sort of technical things. So if you were to touch a dead body or something like this, you would become ritually impure. That doesn't mean you're a bad person right now. These are just sort of like spiritual demarcations and things like that. So in order to get rid of this status of tame mace, or ritual impurity through contact of the dead. And by the way, the, the bad news is, is that we are all Tame Mace. Everyone in the world today has the status of Tame Mace because there are certain tor- forms of um, ritual impurity which are more communicative than others. Some, some sort of like um, kind of drop off, and, but others stay uh, very contagious. So if you've ever touched anyone, who's ever touched anyone, who's ever touched anyone, who's ever touched anyone, going back in time, who's had any contact with a corpse or something like this, then you have the status. So halakhically speaking, we all, everyone has the status of being Tame Mace. This is the reason, if, by the way, if you want to know why there's such an issue about going to Harabayas, that area behind the Kotel, behind the Western Wall, where the Beis HaMikdash was, because the, the, at least the normative halacha, the mainstream view is that uh, a Jewish person should not go up there. The reason is because you're basically entering into the base Hamigdash being Tamei Mase. So that's why, that's why we're not supposed to go up there. Now, there are rabbis who say, well, if you walk in these particular areas, and they have all sorts of PSs, but that's still considered a minority view. Um, okay. So... So this idea of being Tame Mace, the paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer with all this other sort of mixture that's put into it, remove the status of being Tame Mace. And that's why we need the paraduma by the time of Mashiach. And that's why we're waiting for that last paraduma. So that's, that's, um, that's just one of the interesting sort of like unfolding storylines that's going on in creation right now. So these laws are actually very, very relevant, even though we haven't had a paraduma in, I don't know, 2,000 years or something like this. That's how rare they are. I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you one more thing. I read in, in, in one of the books from Rabbi Ari Kaplan that after the destruction of the second base Amigdash, there were still some of these ashes that, that were left over. As you can imagine, they were very closely guarded because, you know, you really needed these things, you know, and that after the temple was destroyed, we still had some of these ashes and that they were handed down to sort of like the, the, the basically the, 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 the Kabbalists, you know, these sort of like secret societies of, you know, incredible Torah scholars and mystics still sort of like for generations after the destruction of the base of Migdash still had some of these ashes, and so they were able to get into their, you know, exalted states of, you know, um, spirituality, in part because they were in Tame Mace, and, and to bring down, like, amazing insights from above. So we, 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 as far as I know, unless there's some secret society out there that still has the, the ashes of the Faraduma, which 
absolutely does not seem to be the case. Um, I would say is not the case. But it's just interesting to know that, that there was a, sort of like a, a storyline to that a, after the fact. You know, they didn't just disappear. As you can imagine, why would they disappear if something's so valuable, people hold on to those things, you know? Um, you know, my, my, my father-in-law, Allah Shalom, basically has one thing from his upbringing in, in, uh, in Poland, in Tomaszow, where he grew up and, you know, fled from the Nazis and was in Siberia as a child and things like this. He has a Kiddush cup from the family. And we, uh, it's in, we have it, it's in a safety deposit box, but, you know, we, we were just saying, why are we putting it in a safety deposit box? We should be using it, you know? But, you know, when, when you run and you leave, you take something that's valuable to you. That, that's just, that's the, that's the normal way people are. And you certainly take the truth with you. Right, so so that again is another validation of our our masora being handed down from parent to child. We have been bequeathed the truth. This is a, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. You see, a lot of people get confused. They say, well, th- these people say one thing, and these people believe another thing. So these people believe another thing. So therefore, the conclusion is there is no actual truth because everyone believes something else very fervently. But I don't understand the logic of that. (laughs) Why can't one group be right and the other groups be extremely sincere and good people and not be right? There, there is no real inherent contradiction, but people just sort of like run to throw up their arms and go, well, I guess, okay, I guess there can be no truth. But why? Why draw that conclusion? I, I, I don't, I, I think that's an illogical conclusion, right? Like, let's say there was chas v'shalom, a murder. Well, this guy says this guy did it, and that says that guy did it, and that says that guy did it, so I guess there was no murder. No, 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 there was a murder. Someone murdered that person. I get that you can't figure out who it was, but an event took place. So, so, what the world is still grappling with is how can you have a concept of truth and not disparage or diminish the humanity and the dignity of other people. Because all too often, if one group has the actual truth, that means that everyone else is, is, is subhuman to a degree. And again, why draw that conclusion at all? Because we're all God's children. So, so this, is, this is something that the world is still trying to struggle with, and that the Jewish people, as as emissaries of this Masorah, of emissaries of this tradition, we ourselves are still struggling with this. How to communicate to the world the, the reality of these teachings, while at the same time making everyone feel uplifted and embraced. This is something that, that we are, you know, in, in, in the book Holy Brother, and if you haven't read Holy Brother, you run, don't walk, one of the greatest books written, Yitta uh, Mandelbaum uh, put it together. It's unbelievable, an unbelievable book. So, in it, someone records that Reb Shlomo said uh, that the whole world is waiting for the world, the whole world is waiting for the Jews to be Jews. The whole world is waiting for the Jews to be Jews. And but you have to be very brave. And, and not just brave, you have to be very brave and very kind and very compassionate and very, you know, it's, 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 it's not so simple. It's not so simple. But the first step is for us to have confidence in our own message. 
That, that's, that's the first step, right? That, that we actually have to believe. You know, they, they, they asked, I forgot who, maybe it was Reb Coin, I'm not sure. They asked, how is it that these other traditions have so many more adherents than the Jewish people? And he said, because they believe their, 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 their tradition, which isn't ultimately true, they believe it like it's truth. And we believe our tradition, which is true, like it's not true. <laughs> so it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. So, so again, let's get back to this this, this thing that I, I wrote up before, this very innocent question that the Ma'or Vashemesh asks, which leads to an amazing, an amazing spiritual history of the world. So in the beginning of Parsha's Hulkas, we introduced it with the, with the whole context of the ashes of the red heifers. So, so we know that our tradition is that at Mount Sinai, God gave Moshe the Torah, and he dictated it letter by letter, word by word. And as Moshe Rabbeinu is writing it down, every once in a while Hashem would say, now stop, don't write this down, I'm going to explain to you what the passage I just told you means. And that's the oral law. So we talk about Torah the written law, and we talk about Torah the oral law. So the oral law, a lot of people, it, it is synonymous with the Talmud, and the Talmud becomes sort of codified maybe, I don't know how long after Mount Sinai, a thousand years, two thousand years, like quite a while. So people start to think, well, wait a second, that's coming so far after Mount Sinai <laughs> that this is called, and they, they use this, this, this phrase, which is really like a, like when, when, when someone independently in a conversation to you uses this phrase, your ear should perk up because you should understand that they've been inculcated with a tremendous toxic bias. That term is called rabbinic Judaism. <laughs> rabbinic Judaism, to just sum it up very quickly, means yes, yeah, something happened and then the rabbis made up the rest. <laughs> that, that would be basically the definition of rabbinic Judaism in a nutshell. Okay? So what they, what they don't understand is this crucial link. They don't understand the history of the Torah Shabbat, the oral law, which is that it came down at the exact same time as the Torah itself came down, but that God chose two modes of transmission, one being through a written text and one being person-to-person, teacher-to-student. These are the two modes of giving over the Torah that God himself chose. As, as the vehicle for transmission throughout the generations. So Moshe himself got the explanations for what the passages meant. And then Moshe taught the words from Hashem. Then Moshe then taught the heavenly explanations from God himself what the passages mean. And those things were passed down through the generations. And even though they weren't published as the Talmud or as the Mishnah or the Gemara, which are all terms for the Torah Shabbat Peh, copious notes were taken. They just weren't codified and published. Because if you look into the Talmud, the, the, the discussions get extremely complicated. <laughs> extremely, extremely complicated. So for them to have survived throughout the generations, notes have to have been taken, and notes, in fact, were taken. They say that they had these wax sheets, and then they would write in these wax sheets. That was sort of like the, the form of writing that, that was used at that point. But anyway, um, the bottom line is that, that both of these things were given over So at, at Mount Sinai itself. And then, of course, when it comes time to the, for the Talmud, in order to illustrate the, the teachings and make them more clear, um, the rabbis would use contemporary events to illustrate how, oh, it's like this, or it's like that, or it can, can be paired to this event and then they'll throw in contemporary things. 
So, so no one should be confused and ask, well, wait a second. So you mean to say that God told Moshe at Mount Sinai this story about the whole Roman, you know, princess, you know, that's going to take place? Like, no, 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 no. They added these things just like I'll tell a story or some, someone will tell a story to illustrate a point. They added in all these events to illustrate the points of these teachings to make them more clear. So, so you do have a, a historical record of it, but nonetheless the explanations of the passages in the Torah itself were explained by the author of the Torah itself, God himself, to Moshe. Okay, hopefully that's clear. That's a very, 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 very foundational thing to know. I can't overly emphasize that. You need to know that because that is at the core of Judaism. It's at the core of Judaism. Okay, so now... One of the implications of that is that nothing is extra. If there is a word in the Torah that seems redundant, it is a plane ticket to the stratosphere. <laughs> because God doesn't like, oh, what was I saying? Uh, let me backtrack a few minutes ago and then start retelling the story. Right? Like, where was I again? I'm sorry, I forgot. No, that's not how the Torah works. If there is an extra letter in the world, in the word, if there is a missing letter in the word, if there is an extra word in the, in the verse, all of these things have to be like all of a sudden you hit a treasure chest. It's like, wait a second, why is that there? That doesn't have to be there. And then you dig and then you fly off into some universe, right? Okay, so now here's an example of that. But you have to have good eyes to see those things. It's like sort of like hunting for gold. You have to hunt for gold when you, when you, when you read a verse in the Torah. Um, so, so it says, I'll read in English, Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, this is the decree of the Torah which Hashem has commanded, Saying, okay, so saying in, in, in Hebrew is the word laymor. You, you don't need two laymors there, right? Why, why do we have two laymors? So the Mor of Hashemesh asks that question. And that's what I'm saying. It seems to be a very innocent technical question, but it's going to lead to like an, 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 enormous, an enormous vista. Okay, so he says, he asks a question, he goes, hmm, all right, what are we talking about here? We're talking about Tumas Mace, the ashes of the red heifer. We're talking about how, how to remove, like, death from the world on some, on a deeper level, right? Like, this is, and now all of a sudden we have two Lamors, which seems very redundant. So what is God trying to point us to? So he says, okay, let's look at the first Lamor in the Torah. <laughs> so, so this is going back. You know, I'm pretty sure it's the first Lamor. If it's not, it doesn't matter. He directs us back to this verse. But I, I do think it is the first Lamor in the Torah. Um, I checked quickly. I didn't see another one. So, so... So, before I get to the first Lamor in the Torah, let me just introduce it the way he does. He, he says that, um, he brings a, a, a famous teaching, which is that Rebbe Meir, um, in his Torah scroll, by the word or, and I'll explain all the context of this in a moment, or, um, or can mean or is spelled in the Torah when it's talking about the katnas or, which means the garments that Hashem gave to Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. These garments are called uh, katnas or. And or is spelled in that context, ayin vav resh. And or means basically um, skin, like leather. Like he gave them these leather garments, these skin, this skin basically it means, okay? So, so the rabbis teach that Rebbe Meir, now Rebbe Meir was one of the codifiers of the Mishnah, which is the oral law. So 
He's one of the great, great towering figures of the entire Talmud. It says in Rebbe Meir's Sefer Torah, in the margin, he had an Aleph instead of an Ayin. So, so, so in other words, he wouldn't, chas v'shalom, he wouldn't dare change the spelling of a word, right? Because this is all from heaven. But in his margin, he wrote the letter Aleph to indicate that or be spelled with an Aleph, Aleph Vavresh, not Ayin Vavresh. Now, what is being told to us here is a tremendous, tremendous secret about, about the origin of human beings and the whole story of the Garden of Eden and about who we are and, and, and what really happened there. Okay, just with this little Aleph in the, in the margin. Okay, what does it mean? Remember, or with an Aleph means light, or with an Ayin means skin. So what he's saying was that originally Adam and Chava were creatures of light. And that after we ate from the tree of knowledge, that basically we physicalized the world. The world sort of like dropped in terms of spirituality. It became further sort of like condensed, if you will. And now we have skin or garments, which God gave us these garments. We now have these garments of skin when we used to be creatures of light. Okay? Let's say the Talmud records that Adam and Chava were 100 amos tall. What does that mean? That's like, we were like skyscrapers. What does that mean? Is that possible? Well, if you're just thinking in terms of light, then there's no, what's the problem? There's no problem. And then if you see that the light is now being condensed down into a physical body, okay, now, now, now I'm getting the deeper levels of what the, what, the, what the rabbis are trying to communicate to us. Now there's a further teaching. Now, there's a further teaching that says that had we not eaten from the tree of knowledge, there would be no such thing as Tame and Tahor, right? These categories that we were talking about, purity and impurity. There would not be the categories of Mutter and Asr, that which is permitted and that which is not permitted, right? So you have all these like distinctions which are sort of like the, 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 the flow, the contents of Halacha, all of a sudden they're saying that had we not eaten from the tree of knowledge, these categories and distinctions would not exist. Why? Well, the way I understand it is that before we ate from the tree of knowledge, before we became physical beings, we existed in this dimension of light, basically, where these distinctions, tame, tahor, you know, kosher, not kosher, permitted, not permitted, were, were not relevant. These were not relevant distinctions to be made in the dimension that we were living in at the time. But once all of a sudden we eat and everything becomes physicalized and segmented, then all of a sudden you have these whole reams of distinctions that exist in a physical world. Pure and unpure, permitted and not permitted. And they're all a consequence from eating from the tree of knowledge. Because from eating from the tree of knowledge, that's what brings death into the world. Right? What were we talking about? We're, we're talking about these two lamors, right? Which are in the context of removing the impurity of death, Tahor and Tame. And now we can get to what the mayor of Hashemesh says is the first lamor, that those two lamors are hinting at the lamor that's there in Parsha's Chukas about removing the impurity of death, and the first lamor. Now, now we can reveal. Now we can reveal the headquarters of the Laymore that he was referring to. W what context do you think that first Laymore is coming in? Well, listen, I'll read you the, the verse. It's verse, it's verse um, 15, chapter 2, in Breshis. Hashem God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. And now it's verse 16. And Hashem commanded the man, saying, Laymore, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, 
but of the tree of knowledge of good and bad you must not eat. <laughs> For on that day you eat of it, you will surely die. So isn't this unbelievable? The first laymore is referring to the impurity of death that came down into the world by the eating by the Garden of Eden. And now we have these two laymores, and what's the second laymore referring to in that chunk in the beginning of Parsha's Chulkas? How do we get rid of the impurity of death that came down from the first laymore? Do, do, do you see how unbelievable this is? How, like, such an innocent question? Wait a second, there are two laymores? All of a sudden takes us back <laughs> to the beginning, to the origin of human beings, to the whole history of life and death and purity and impurity? This is what Torah studies. So, the Mirror of Hashemish makes a, a, a point along the way, which is also fascinating. You know, there are schools today where women learn Torah. It's the, the original movement of, of, of um, empowering, empowering women to learn Torah. The, the, the name of these schools are called Beis Yaakov. So where did, where did the term Beis Yaakov come from? Right? So if you look, and Rashi points this out, um, you, can, you can look it right up. When the Torah is about to be given, it says, Hashem says to Moshe, give it to Beis Yaakov. And like I say, you can just look it up in, in Rashi. And, and so it says, what, is, what does this mean? Give it to Beis Yaakov. It says, give it to the women first. Give the Torah to the women first. And the Mirror of Hashemish says, that's because originally by the first Lamor, God gave it to man first. And man, however, however Adam communicated it to Chava, somehow it wasn't communicated effectively enough because she got confused and listened to the snake and then everything went south. So now we're resetting the agenda. Now we're giving the Torah Mount Sinai, give it to the women first this time. So now let's get back to the Let's get back to the, this idea of the, of the second laymore now. So we see by the first laymore, it was the imperative, the command, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, you're going to bring death into the world. And that's going to cause all these distinctions. Well, now that we didn't listen to the first laymore, and we ate from the tree of knowledge, and we live in a physical world where there are all these distinct, distinctions, including Tamay Mace, the impurity of death, what do we do now? What do we do now? So Hashem says, I'm giving you the ashes of the red heifer. And that's, that's, that's the second more. The ashes of the red heifer are going to come and remove the impurity of death. Okay, so now, you see, and, and we know that we're still waiting for the last red heifer, which is going to bring us to a time where there's no death at all. So you have here the entire history of life and death and the presence of death and the eradication of death, all hidden within these two laymores. Okay. Now let's go further. And, and, and you know, it's funny because we, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, but I didn't realize that we were about, that we were right on the, the precipice of the headquarters of this entire thought. We've been talking about turning ions into olives. And if you want to hear a little bit about this, you can listen to a talk on, on uh, Torah on iTunes.com, a talk I gave a couple weeks ago called Saying the Shema. You can hear more about this topic that we're about to get into if you want to. But now we're going to get into the headquarters of it. All right? This is the prime example of it. Now, I told you that there's a, a mixture. There's a mixture that was made with the ashes of the red heifer. You take, the, you take the ashes, you take the red heifer, and you burn it down till it's only ashes, and then you're going to mix it with some, some various things that the Torah explains. So, so you have two words in Hebrew which are very similar. You have afer, which is spelled with an ayin, and means ashes. Okay? Now, I'm sorry? 
is afer is within aleph. So what's afer then? Earth. No, no, no. So I'm, I'm, pardon my pronunciation, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be consistent, but, but I'll translate. I'll translate. Okay. So, so you have ashes, and ashes are what we're going to use from the paraduma. Okay. That word for ashes is spelled with an ayin. And from ashes, nothing grows. Okay? Now you have another word, very similar. The spelling is exactly the same, except it's afar, it's, exp- it's, it's spelled with an aleph. An aleph, and, and when it's spelled with an aleph, that means dirt. Right? Something from the ground. And this is something where life can spring. So, so understand that we have these two words which are spelled the same way and are pronounced almost exactly the same way, but one means ashes, and that's with an ayin that nothing grows from, and the other is spelled with an aleph, which means like dirt, like soil, which life can spring from. All right, now just... <clears throat> Just so that just so that we understand, just uh, just a just a simple primer on the difference between ayin and aleph. So, so they're on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of understanding the world. Aleph is the first letter of the aleph base, and it's number one. And it, and as we always point out, if you break it down, an aleph is actually three letters, two yuds and a vav, which add up to twenty-six, which is the yud ke vav ke Hashem's holiest name. So the Aleph is unbelievable, you know? It's really symbolizing unity, oneness, Rachamim, everything good. Then we have, on the other side, another silent letter. These are two silent letters, which is what's so interesting about it, because they, they both seem to be, on the surface, very similar, and yet they're opposites. On the other side, we have the Ayin. The Ayin is the number 70, okay? And we talk about 70 nations in the world. We talk about that's the illusion that there are multiple powers in the world, as opposed to only one power in the world, which is the Aleph, right? Which stands for one. In fact, the word Echad in Hebrew, Echad, which means one, starts with the letter Aleph. Makes sense, because Aleph is one. So we have Aleph on one side, we have Ayin on the other side. Ayin is like the eye, the eye sees the superficiality of reality, as opposed to the oneness which is behind it, which unites everything, okay? So, ayin stands for this, this ash that nothing grows from. Makes sense, right? Aleph stands for the word when it means the ground where growth can come from. Okay. Now, we're using this Afar, this, this, these ashes, and we're going to use it in a mixture that removes death from the world. And so, what's so interesting is that the Torah, and and I'll, I'll tell you where you see it. You see it in in verse nine, chapter nineteen in Parshas Chukas. See, this is like a, this. This alone is a reason to learn Hebrew. I'll read it to you in English. A pure man shall gather the ash of the cow and place it outside the camp in a pure place. Okay, it's talking about the ash from the cow. So we said that that's spelled with an ayin, right? Except the Torah spells it afer with an aleph. In other words, the Torah itself, Hashem Himself, is showing you how when we're talking about the removal of death, the ayin is being transformed into an aleph. And it's telling you about the history of death, that all death is going to return back to life. Because these ashes, and this is part of the mystery of these ashes, these ashes that the word itself becomes transformed because there's a new energy that's being unlocked in terms of the removal 
of death. It's going from an ayin to an aleph. And that's not the Torah misspelling this word. <laughs> the Torah was dictated to Moshe Rabbeinu letter by letter. This is Hashem telling you the transformation that is going to happen in the world itself. And now, Rabbi Shapiro goes further and he, it's, it's so amazing, drawing from the deepest sources, he says, look at the two other letters because there's a bigger transformation going on here. It's not just from the ayin to an aleph. That in itself is remarkable. But there's something else going on here. We talk about the para aduma. Okay? The para aduma. How do you spell, the par, how do you spell para? Pe, resh, he. Now, we said before, pe and resh, par, is a really interesting word because it's the gematria 280. And if you take, see, Hebrew is amazing because they have these things called final letters. So if you have, remember, we're talking about, just so you understand that we're not on a new topic here. Just keep in mind, when you hear final letters, think death, okay? So we have these things called final letters. What happens when you spell a word and there are... So Hebrew has these, these five final letters. When you get to a word and you use one of these final letters, that means the end of the word, right? Just like death symbolizes an end, so a final letter symbolizes, if you will, the death of a word, right? Because the word has reached its end, okay? So now, so now if you were to take all the five final letters and add them up, they come up to the number 280, which is par. Pay is 80. Resh is 200. 280. So look at this word para. Para is pay resh hey. Hey is the number five. So it's telling you that there are five final letters. Five letters that add up to par. So in the word para, as in para aduma, which is getting rid of what? Getting rid of the end. Getting rid of all of the death. The paraduma, the word itself, is telling you that it's getting rid of the end of all of these things. And that's part and parcel of the transformation of the ayin into the aleph. Of ash, where nothing grows, to the aleph, where life again begins, because that means afar, which means ground, which is where things can grow again. I'll say that again. I'll say that again, because I, I realized there was a, a lot of thoughts all at once. We're talking about this, this that, that in this word, para, the para duma, that you're seeing in this world all of the ideas that we've been discussing this entire talk. Okay? Because para is pe, resh, he. He means five. There are five final letters, which when you add them all up together, add up to par, which is 280. Okay? Par, all the final letters, the, the collective sum of the final letters, stands for the end, which we can also call death. So the paraduma is coming to get rid of the impurity of death. It's basically showing you that where we think things end, they don't end. Where you think there's only ash and nothing can grow from the ash, it gets transformed into earth where things can grow again. Which is also tied to the two lemurs to tell you that, yeah, just like death entered to the world, death will also exit the world. And we don't know how it can happen. And so it's very appropriate, it's very appropriate that this teaching should be the classic, like you say, well, okay, well, what's, what's your uh, choice for the most mysterious teaching in all of Torah? Do you know all the rabbis agree? It's this one. Everyone agrees. It's this one. Shlomo Amelech says, 
I couldn't figure it out. It says that it was only on the very last day of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, Moshe Rabbeinu who the Torah came through, only in the last moments of his life that he figured out the meaning of this. So this is for us the ultimate paradox. The ultimate paradox. How can it be that in a world of so much brokenness, in a world where there's death, how can it be that this is just a temporary state? And yet that's the truth. And your ability to wrap your mind around it is ultimately irrelevant because it's going to happen anyway, whether you understand it or not. You don't have to understand it. You can understand that you don't understand it. That's at least a level. But the, the arrival of this day is not contingent on whether you accept it or understanding it because the train is moving and it's going into the station. Death is leaving the world. It has to be. It has to be. Because Hashem is just life. We, we, one of the names of Hashem is Chayolamim, the life of all of the worlds. Hashem is life. How, how, could, how could there be death, ultimately? How could there be death? How could there be? You know, Jews believe in reincarnation. How could it be that, 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 that a, 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 a soul leaves and then it's just gone? How, how could it be that there aren't other dimensions in, in heaven? That what, a soul just disappears, a life force, a potent, a piece of God just disappears? It's, it's completely illogical. I'm talking about from a physics standpoint. It's completely illogical. Of course it goes someplace. Of course there are greater realities and greater realms. Of, co- of course there is. Of course there is. So, so let's be good planners. Let's be, let's, be, let's be smart in terms of how we live our life. It says that this world is like a, a hallway leading into a banquet hall. Right? So, and, and, and you, if you're going in to go into a banquet... You don't want to be like reaching into your pocket and eating five energy bars and stuffing your mouth with Doritos, right? Because why? You're about to enter into the banquet hall. So there, there has to be some measure of proper planning if this is the reality that we exist in. So let's look at our lives and make sure that we're taking this enormous, enormous, enormous opportunity of life at this stage of creation and using it to its fullest. Now for some questions and answers. There's actually like a lot of um, death in this partial too with both uh, Miriam and yeah. Aaron. Died. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I was actually talking about that another time that yes, Miriam dies and Aaron, and, and Aaron dies. And, and, and Moshe is given essentially his death sentence. When he's told he's not going into Israel, that's essentially his death sentence. So you have the three great leaders of the Jewish people all dying in the Torah that the beginning of the Torah portion begins with the discussion of the removal of death from the world. I mean, it's not a coincidence. It's, it's, it's exalted. It's exalted. Yeah. First of all, I have been known to eat Doritos before a banquet, but that's just my my eating disorder. But um, my questions in here seem to be the most ornery of all the ones that come your way, and this one's no exception. Um, You were talking about the realms, the other realms, and you said, of course there is. I don't see, of course there is, I see... It might be. I see. I'd love it if there was. Right. I'd say I'd love if I get. I, if right. I get to, of course, there is. Right. What are you seeing that I'm not seeing, uh, other than having logged in a lot more hours of study than me? But e- even if you had, that doesn't stand a reason that it right. would hit you that way. Right. What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? Okay. So you know, the Torah begins with um, "Let there be light." Yeah. Okay. So. So the, 
you would think that the natural state of the world before God said, let there be life, was just total darkness. And yet, we know that God existed before the world is created. And one of the names of God is or in self, life, light without end. So you see that the real beginning point of understanding the universe is light without end. Or beginning. Or beginning. Right. right. That infinite light. Right. So the beginning of the universe is infinite light. The beginning of the universe is not darkness. So there's a support system, dimensionally speaking, I'm talking in terms of physics now, there's a, there's a support system for the universe. Okay? The universe does not end with its boundaries. The, the universe is, is, is cradled within the infinite light of God. And so these are the dimensions that we speak of. These are the dimensions that we speak of. And to me, that when you understand the big picture and you contextualize the world itself, well, of course, of course, to deliberately use that phrase again, of course there are dimensions and light surrounding the world, because that is the beginning of everything, and that didn't disappear. So, so, so there we have it. To me, it's just very logical, almost pointing to a map. There, there it is. Of course it's there.